Like most people around the world, Americans are rather fond of living. So they take comfort in the notion that most fatally communicative diseases have been eradicated. But now, some diseases seem to be having a viral comeback, while other new diseases threaten to emerge. So we must ask, could Americans be plagued by a plague? The answer is yes, and antibiotics couldn't help us. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. Oh my life, watching America. Oh my life, it's panic in America. Oh, 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 trouble in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Uh-huh, it's the plague. Uh-huh, it's the plague. Uh-huh, it's the plague. Uh-huh, it's the plague. Gonna kill you in a few days. A pandemic so severe. Black death caused such horror and fear. And there ain't no cure for that girl. You'll be dead in no time, fat girl. You get acronicrosis from the Yersinia pestis. And it makes your tongue a black girl. Gonna bury you out and back, girl. We're up against a disease that spreads like wildfire, a plague out of the dark ages. And every second it takes to find it means that much more spread. Use every means to get cooperation. If they still refuse to submit, tell them what they face. A thousand ugly sores breaking through and a fever that burns its victims to death. Let me hear you say, this plague is bubonic. It's hard to believe that typhus, which was eliminated in developed countries, has made its way back to the streets of Los Angeles. Now there's alarm that this medieval disease and others threaten to create a widespread health crisis. Typhus is spread by infected rats and fleas and can cause extremely high fever and is deadly. Dr. Drew Pinsky issues this warning. People are getting sick and typhus is not the only thing you're gonna hear about. You're gonna hear about plague and tuberculosis, medieval diseases exploding. Richard Preston writes and lectures about infectious disease epidemics and bioterrorism. He is concerned about what he perceives as our lack of serious preparedness to thwart the consequences of an infectious modern-day plague. He is also the author of 10 books, including the New York Times bestseller from 1994 entitled The Hot Zone, the 40th leading-selling book for the entire 1990s which is no small feat. Additionally, his work became a National Geographic drama. His latest release is Crisis in the Red Zone, which examines the Ebola epidemic of 2013 and 2014. But there again, so much more. Before we get into the rather arresting and, and, and scary material of your latest book, I have to tell you that I did a little bit of research and I noted that you certainly have an interest in uh, arboreal forests and moreover that you took your son, Oliver, and your daughter, Laura, and you had them sleep in tree boats 32 stories high in the sequoias. And my, my immediate question is, how did you get the permission of Mrs. Preston to do that? <laughs> well, actually, the, uh, I went tree camping with my children. I, I fell into this peculiar activity of recreational tree climbing, as it's called, um, because I was between books. And I was looking for something that had nothing to do with writing, haha. And I found, I <laughs> occupational found out about, hazard. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The problem is one gets interested in things. So I, I went to a tree climbing school in Atlanta, Georgia, where I learned the basics. So I got my kids climbing, and then we uh, we went tree camping. So we were sixty feet off the ground in this giant oak tree. Uh, Oliver was below me. And Laura was kind of next to me in these tree boat hammocks. And, of course, you're tied in with a safety rope. So if you roll out of your hammock, you're not going to fall. We've got hoagies, which are a sandwich that's very popular in New Jersey. Right. And uh, honey-roasted potato chips. And then we (laughs) went to sleep. And the things that live up there aren't familiar with humans and can be tame. And as morning dawned, um, we began hearing uh, migrating songbirds, warblers, 
singing in the branches all around us. And then, uh, just as I was kind of stirring awake, a flying squirrel landed on my chest. <laughs> it, it was attracted to the uh, honey-roasted potato chip crumbs that were sitting on my stomach. <laughs> I sat up, and then the flying squirrel flew away. I didn't know what it was. I later encountered these flying squirrels, and they're, they're very different than a typical gray squirrel. Mm. They're quiet, very gentle creatures, and they have large brown eyes. They stare at you. They often appear in groups. They like to be together. And I've swung over toward these creatures on my, my rope and gotten right up to them. And then you can take your fingertip and you can stroke them on the forehead between their ears. Wow. And they go to sleep. They close their eyes like a cat. Wow. And so I was doing this with a flying squirrel. And, you know, it was quiet for a little while. And then all of a sudden, its eyes flew open and it really looked at me. And it, yeah, I could see its little mind thinking to itself, what is happening? What is this? And then it suddenly <laughs> yeah. took off and flew away. Wow. Well, I, for one, and innumerable other people listening, uh, are just doing that, listening on with envy of this wonderful experience you've had as a dad and a naturalist. You are a man of breadth and character. I knew that immediately when I learned about you doing this with your, with your children. Now, let's transition. Exactly 216 miles from this studio where I speak, and more significantly, 21 miles from Washington, D.C., is the town of Reston, Virginia. And if one, as you know, journeys to Reston, Virginia, you can find the United States Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Disease. Now, in the winter of 1989, the Institute received a shipment of non-human primate tissue mainly from monkeys. They were African phyloviruses, and as I understand it, spurs or particles were found in lungs subsequently, which we came to know as Ebola, which has a 90% mortality rate. What happened next? Well, what happened was that the, uh, the monkey caretakers were taking care of these monkeys at the Reston Monkey House in Reston, Virginia. There were about 600 wild monkeys in the building that had been captured in the Philippines, as it turned out, and they were destined for scientific research at various labs around the United States. They were being held at this facility. Well, the, the animals began dying, and they had pretty horrifying symptoms. Some of them were bleeding from the openings of their bodies uh, and then crashing and dying very quickly. Crashing means basically going into shock, sudden shock, and then that's followed by a cardiac arrest. So... Um, uh, the head veterinarian sent some samples up to USAMRA, to the Army base, um, thinking that it was a virus that was harmless to humans. And a scientist there um, began making tests, and uh, he, uh, while he was making these tests, he and a colleague of his um, took a whiff from a flask where the uh, unidentified virus was growing. They put the flask up to their noses and smelled, they were hoping to get the scent of a bacterium, mm. but they didn't smell anything at all. Viruses are not bacteria, and they don't produce any odor when they multiply. Uh, and these two guys had inadvertently exposed themselves to Ebola virus, which had never been seen outside Africa. Uh, it was in the monkeys. So when the Army finally found out what, what this virus was, they went into high gear and there was simply no precedent. Nobody in the U.S. government really knew what to do when this level four hot agent, as they call it, um, a lethal, incurable, untreatable virus that has a very high mortality rate and is highly infectious in humans, um, suddenly appeared near the nation's capital. Uh, there really wasn't any precedent for it. Um, but the Army uh, made a series of what I think were correct decisions. They decided to um, seal off the monkey house. They alerted everybody, of course. Uh, and then they, you know, everybody in the U.S. government who had authority in this situation, they all knew about it. But the army um, took the lead in dealing with the monkeys. They sealed off the building, and then they went in with biohazard teams wearing spacesuits, full biological spacesuits. Um, and they then euthanized the monkeys. They put them to sleep and then took 
thousands of biological samples from these dead monkeys to try to determine what this virus exactly was and exactly how it was spreading among the monkeys. And there was some evidence that, in fact, it was spreading in the air, which makes it particularly frightening. And then the hot zone really detailed that narrative um, of these soldiers and what they did, and it also and the scientists. And then at the same time in that book, I picked up some of the earlier history of Ebola virus, like when it first appeared, and I wrote about what it does to humans. Now, you speak about trans-species jumps. Uh, in other words, a virus working as a parasite, it can uh, only exist by living off an organism, but they can change and transverse species. Is this a common occurrence? And this particular occurrence with Ebola a, a, a anomaly because it's so lethal? I mean, does this transference happen all the time or is it rare? What a great question. Uh, it turns out that the trans-species jump or the cross-species jump, when a virus moves from one type of host to another type of host, um, is as old as the hills and common. It's a, it's a standard routine practice of viruses to change hosts, and they've been doing it since the dawn of life on this planet, literally as old as the hills. And if you think about what benefits a virus, uh, it's very beneficial to a virus to change species once in a while, because species go extinct, um, or species and habitats change over time. And so in order to survive over the long haul, viruses really do need to do this. They need to, they need to basically pick up roots and move to a new host. And right now on planet Earth, there are now close to 8 billion humans, and we are living more and more in crowded urban megacities, these giant cities where anywhere from 20 to 30 million people are congregated in a tight space, breathing one another's air, touching one another's bodies. And from the point of view of a virus, um, the human species represents nothing more or less than a gigantic pile of meat and potentially a new host. You have stated that out of the last 13 major outbreaks of infectious disease, 12, a dozen, have come from animals. Can we expect more? Yes. Yes. They typically, uh, the viruses typically come out of nature, out of wild animals, or sometimes out of domesticated animals, more likely out of wild. So fluffy can and potentially kill you? Yes, or that rat that lives in your basement, or... If you happen to live in a tropical country, it could be that bat that lives in a tree near you, or it could be an insect parasite that lives on that bat. Bats have their own kinds of parasites, and one possibility is that Ebola virus comes from bats, but the bats catch it from some insect that lives on them. Uh, so to this day, uh, there is no firm proof as to where Ebola actually lives in the natural ecosystems of the planet, although bats are a prime suspect. Now, one might entertain the idea that there is imbued in humanity a self-preservation aspect in that we are told that a matter of exposure to many, well, nefarious agents actually eventually builds an immunity. Is that sometimes not true? Well, it certainly is not true for these so-called emerging viruses. What they are is these are the viruses that are coming out of the Earth's ecosystems and invading humans for the first time. And the problem for us is that these emerging viruses, uh, our immune systems have never encountered them before. And so we don't have any um, innate immunity to a virus like Ebola, which is emerging from nature. But there are many others as well. They have weird names, uh, Nipah, um, Raven, Marburg, Victoria, and so on and so forth. Um, and so as a consequence of this, because we don't have any immunity to them, they tend to be extremely lethal when they get into humans. And, you know, you basically, you can't depend on your immune system to protect you from one of these new viruses. Well, let's review. I know you're aware of all of these um, versions of plagues 
But let's review them. I review them very, very quickly, and then I'd like to get your response concerning the future. Uh, in 541, we had the Justinian plague, which was basically brought by, um, well, sailors. Uh, it traveled from Africa to Europe, and because of rats on merchant ships, it infected people in Constantinople and killed 25 million. By 1347, we had a medieval breakout uh, from Italian sailors coming from Crimea, and it was known as the Black Plague that killed 50 million. 1629, we had the Italian Plague, uh, bubonic, and obviously a continuation of the of the mishap and uh, extreme dis- death that had been experienced before. And then 1665, we had the Great Plague of London. And at that, 8,000 people died a week. Now, some of us remember Monty Python, bring out your dead, bring out your dead. <laughs> but it wasn't so funny because it was a real event. Yeah. 1720, we go to Marseille, France, and we have uh, 100,000 dead mainly from ships from the Middle East. Uh, And at that time, there was a need to quarantine. So they had quarantine walls. And incidentally, going back to London, I can tell you that there were red crosses, as you know, were placed on on homes where people were believed to be infected with the plague. And so to avoid quarantine, uh, they would put a red cross on the door of the persons that lived there. And then finally, we get to 1855, the Chinese province of Yunnan, and um, worldwide, ships going all over, and possibly they estimate that as many as 15 million people died up until about 1950. What are the next waves of this? Can it be anticipated? Can it be seen? Certainly, Ebola has been the scariest one on the horizon. And by the way, your book is terrifying um, in all the right ways, if I can say that, because it's sober, it's real, it's, it, it, it can happen. Stephen King, you managed to terrorize Stephen King. That is no small feat. So with intrepidation and concern here, I ask you, what is the next phase? Well, this is a really interesting question. I also wanted to uh, mention that in your enumeration of major plagues, one of the greatest was the plague of Native American people in the New World um, when smallpox and measles wiped out millions Mm. of Native Americans um, and really facilitated the uh, settlement of the New World. So um, what, what's next? What does the future hold? Well, I think that the lessons of history um, still prevail. And I made a study, for example, of the availability of biosafety level four, so-called red zone hospital beds in New York City. This would be a hospital unit that is prepared to handle a patient with a level four virus lethal, incurable, highly infectious, and, uh, and also a hospital unit that has trained personnel, people who actually know how to handle a patient who is bleeding out with a virus like Ebola. Um, these patients are lethally infective to medical care professionals. So I made a study of the availability of so-called red zone beds in New York City. These are hospital beds where staff and technology is prepared to handle a highly dangerous, infective patient who has a level four virus, um, somebody who is bleeding out or coughing with a, a lethal hot agent. And it turns out that there are something like eight red zone beds in all of New York City. Wow. Uh, the greater New York area has a population of 20 million. Now, what if, uh, what if uh, a virus, not Ebola, but some other virus popped up in New York City, a level four hot agent. And let's just say maybe it's airborne or maybe one of the ways it can travel is through people um, coughing or breathing. All right, now, what would happen is uh, New York City has laid some plans for what to do in this event, but they're not there yet. How could they be really? But what would happen is that hospitals would quickly fill up with extremely dangerous, infective patients. And the first people to become infected would be caregivers in the hospitals, nurses and staff and physicians. The hospitals would be unable to handle large numbers of patients. If 1,000 or 10,000 people in New York City had a level 4 virus and there were only eight beds for them, you can just imagine what would happen. First, 
people would be terrified to go to hospitals, um, which means that people would start dying at home in their apartments, being cared for by loved ones. And people would be dying on the streets. Um, you would see, you know, a person lying face down at Columbus Circle in New York City. Um, nobody would want to touch that person. That person would be dangerous as all get out. People would be leaving New York any way they could. Now, this is exactly what happened in West Africa during the Ebola outbreak. The hospitals became lethally dangerous. Large numbers of medical staff, including many physicians, died of Ebola. Everybody was afraid to go to the hospital. They began taking care of their loved ones at home. And then the virus was transmitting from one person to another inside families. People were dying in the streets. Well, let's, let's, let's get specific, because I, I think it's necessary um, to give people a, a visceral understanding of, of what this looks like in the case of Ebola. You had what you've referred to as black blood uh, coming out of every orifice, practically, from the mouth, dripping down the cheek, going down the, 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 the throat, black blood coming out of people's anuses, um, people going mad, deranged. I mean, this does sound like science fiction, but the scary thing is it isn't. Now, with that happening and the first burgeoning of that, how would the media control it? This is one of the things that, you know, we always have, we've seen all these sci-fi movies, even from the 50s. We can't let this get out. If it gets out, we'll have mayhem and, and mania. But what's the policy? What do we do? Well, what do there we is do? No policy. There is no policy. And I, yeah, and I think, and I think, in fact, in a situation like this, it's very, very important for the media to be on the job and reporting accurately on what's happening because people, otherwise, people will be depending on rumors and hysteria. Um, so, factual reporting is really important. There's always been a strain in the media of skepticism, and this is a healthy thing. It's a really good thing. Uh, but there's been a good deal of skepticism about exactly how dangerous Ebola really is. And in fact, um, that line on Ebola was taken up by Ebola experts and public health experts around the world in the 1990s after my book, The Hot Zone, was published. And there came to be a consensus view, media and in the scientific community, that Ebola virus wasn't much of a problem and never would be. And there, were, there was almost magical thinking going on on the part of scientists. Whistling in the dark. They were whistling in the dark, and they were saying things like, oh, well, Ebola really can't spread among humans because it's too, it's too contagious, it's too hot, it kills people too fast, and so it can't really establish itself in humans. Well, that turned out to be completely wrong. And I like to say that um, nature often does whatever is necessary in order to make the most number of experts wrong. And nature pulled a really big surprise on everybody when Ebola broke out in West Africa, got into the cities, infected many thousands of people, and ultimately got to the United States, where 11 people had Ebola, um, and it got into a hospital in Dallas, Texas. Right. So um, that was a big wake-up call about the dangers, not only of Ebola, but really, I feel in a much larger sense, about the biological reality of the human species today. We are in a continuing process of adjustment to changing ecosystems on the planet. And one of the major effects of this is new kinds of viruses making trans-species jumps into humans and getting into urban areas. And it is a very big problem, and it's not going to go away. This is Watching America. We'll be right back. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest is Richard Preston. He's the author of Crisis in the Red Zone, which, among other things, is a look at Ebola, the Ebola scare. He'd written about that long before it became a major issue uh, of recent memory. But he is a mind that anticipates, and what he anticipates is quite terrorizing and quite frightening. So I should forewarn people listening that you will have to have um, strong endurance for perhaps hearing things that one doesn't want to hear, but nonetheless, we should hear. Who have been your critics? Well, first, I just wanted to mention, Alan, that um, there is also a note of hope and optimism 
Um, and okay. we can get onto that. Um, it's new scientific developments with regard to these new viruses. But anyway, um, who are my critics? Well, I think my strongest critics have been people, um, both journalists and scientists, who said that I exaggerated the appearance of Ebola virus in the hot zone, that I made it worse than it really is, um, and that I had too many people bleeding out. And there is some justification for that. Um, what we know, now know about Ebola is that many people die of Ebola, and they don't have that profuse bleeding. Um, they have absolutely horrifying symptoms, but it just doesn't involve as much blood. Whereas some people do, in fact, have that, that hemorrhagic manifestation, which is itself, you know, right out of Stephen King. And indeed, people do weep tears of blood. Um, many people who have Ebola develop a kind of psychosis. Nobody is really sure what it is, but these people get out of touch with reality. The face the human face sets itself into a mask-like expression. Um, it's as if the, person, the person's identity or personality has been wiped out by the virus. Uh, they call it the classic Ebola mask-like face. But at any rate, the critics, so the critics came on to me for two reasons. First of all, they said that I exaggerated the symptoms of Ebola. My reply to that is hardly. And uh, the other criticism was that Preston exaggerates the danger of Ebola. And Ebola is really a minor thing. Until recently, only a few hundred people had ever died of Ebola virus. And uh, those criticisms were, I suppose, valid for the time. But nature and history have certainly made them look a bit silly. When Ebola broke out in West Africa, it became a worldwide problem, you know, a continent-wide and transcontinental problem. And Ebola simply proved that it is a ferocious life form and not to be taken lightly. We are living in a time of very volatile politics and positions regarding immigration, legal or otherwise. One of the concerns which is always mentioned is uh, the transmigration of persons, bringing also potentially diseases. As is evidenced by my accent, I was not born in the United States and I came here as a legal immigrant. I had to have an alien card and what have you. But in order to attain that, I had to prove I was healthy and I had to, um, you know, be examined and, and what have you. There are some who are saying, with good intentions, you know, oh, come on, people are suffering, let them into the country. However, this is something that struck me as curious. Some of my friends who had adhered to that position suddenly became very nervous when the likes of, of, uh, of Nancy Wrightball came back from abroad, having been with, uh, you know, I think it was Doctors Without Borders, and also working with Samaritan's Purse, uh, Franklin Graham's organization. Uh, and Kent Brantley came back. The idea was, oh my gosh, these people are coming in, they're going to infect us. Suddenly a different tune. What do you make of that? Well, that's a very interesting observation about human nature. Um, when something is a, we feel is a direct threat to us, um, our political opinions can suddenly shift. Um, I would say that Nancy Wrightball and Kent Brantley posed absolutely no danger to the North American population whatsoever. They were severely biocontained when they came into the United States. They were wearing spacesuits to protect everybody else. They were placed immediately in a high biocontainment hospital suite, you know, behind sealed glass doors mm -hmm. where nothing could get out. There was no problem there. Um, but in a larger sense, people fear um, infectious diseases coming from abroad inside human bodies. And there should be concern about that. Um, but the fact of the matter is that there's really nothing we can do about it other than close down our borders, which would cause um, a complete economic disaster worldwide if a country like the United States shut its borders down because of fear of an infectious disease. And so the, uh, the, real, the real world solution to this problem is to commit a little bit of money and manpower, or human power, I should say, to um, strengthening public health in foreign countries where these viruses originate. Well, how, do you, how do you do that, though, Richard? I mean, uh, you know, I just wonder what the specific directives would be. I mean, how do you stop people from encountering, as you alluded to, bats and what have you? 
You can't. You can't possibly stop the viruses from trying to invade the human species. But what you can do is you can have the equivalent of a fire warden in a fire tower looking out over a forest for signs of smoke. Ah. You could have public health doctors who are educated and trained in how to spot an emerging disease and how to separate it out from common diseases like malaria, for example. And there are already some people like that, but many of them are from foreign countries. And what we really need is in, say, Africa, people who are trained to look for new infectious diseases, and then medical caregivers who, are, who have basic training in how to handle a patient who could be very infective. Um, it doesn't cost a lot of money. It just takes time and effort. Now, there was literally a miracle drug called ZMAP, Z-M-A-P-P, Z-M-A-P-P or for our Canadian-British friends, Z-M-A-P-P. And uh, it was the cure. And it even would begin to take effect in a shorter time as 90 minutes. Now, you had said a few moments ago that Kent Brantley was no threat to the United States, nor Nancy Wrightbull. And I will accept that. But would they not have been if there hadn't been a Z-map? Well, it's a very interesting question. Um, I should give a little background on, on this drug, Z-map. So the drug was developed by a this small biotech company in San Diego, founded by a guy named Larry Zeitlin. Zeitlin was working for another biotech company that went bankrupt, and he began collecting unemployment. He used his unemployment checks to found this company, MapBio, that ultimately developed the drug that apparently cures Ebola in 90 minutes. Um, the, the drug itself, ZMAP, is still very much unproven and untested. There's a lot of debate about how effective it is. But in my view, at least, the drug is extremely effective in some or many individuals who, are, who have Ebola. In some cases, they used multiple, um, if you will, installments of the drug, right? Yes. Um, in fact, you need to have two or better three doses of the drug spaced several days apart. And the first dose worked on Kent Brantley, appeared to work on him in less than 90 minutes. Um, he was on the verge of death. He may have been actively dying. Um, he, was, uh, he was really crashing uh, with Ebola virus when the drug was administered to him intravenously in uh, a saline solution. And after um, about 60 minutes, he sat up in bed. He had not been able to sit up in bed for days. Hmm. Um, and then 90 minutes later, he got up out of bed and went into the bathroom, and he hadn't been able to move for days. Wow. Um, and then when he came out of the bathroom, he said that he felt noticeably better, and he looked better. And at that time, he had only received about 12% of the first dose of the three doses. So the drug, um, the drug was being dripped into him very slowly. So the drug appears to be just extremely powerful. Um, it looks like it basically killed every Ebola particle in his body. Uh, it's, an, it's a drug made of three different kinds of antibodies, which are proteins that circulate naturally in a person's bloodstream. And um, your immune system uses antibodies to, to stop, to block, and to kill any kind of invading microbes. These antibodies were just extremely effective against Ebola. Um, but then you have to have more than one dose of the drug because what happens is that even after every single particle of Ebola in your body has been killed, there are cells that are still infected with the virus, and they begin spitting out fresh copies of Ebola. And so you feel okay, but then a few days later, you're starting to get symptoms again. Um, if you take the drug again, and then the three doses apparently kill all the cells that are infected with Ebola. Now, um, as so an international uh, effort, Richard, um, was ZMAP or ZMAP provided liberally to the nations and points of origin? No, unfortunately, that was not possible because at the time that Brantley and Wrightball received the drug, there were only six doses, or rather six courses of the drug in the world. Wow. The drug had been incredibly difficult to manufacture, very slow, tricky process. Each course of the drug had a manufacturing cost of around $100,000, I think. 
And um, interestingly or tragically, one of those courses of the drug was sitting in a freezer at a camp being run by Doctors Without Borders in Sierra Leone, mm. where at that camp there was a, um, a prominent African physician and scientist named Humar Khan dying of Ebola. And uh, the, the managers of the Doctors Without Borders camp had a, a moral and ethical crisis about whether to offer the drug to Dr. Khan. Um, and ultimately, they didn't tell him about the existence of the drug in the freezer, which was 100 feet from his tent. Uh, and he succumbed to Ebola. Uh, the drug was then transferred to a facility being run by Samaritan's Purse, a charitable organization. And at Samaritan's Purse, there were two Americans who had Ebola. And their, their uh, attending physician himself went through a tremendous ethical struggle about whether to administer the drug to his two American patients. And the problem uh, for the Doctors Without Borders people, the problem was that they were fearful that the drug would kill Dr. Khan. Um, and then uh, the local population would become infuriated, thinking that white people had made an experiment on a prominent African doctor mm. and had killed him. Mm -hmm. um, even if the drug had no effect and he just died of, of naturally of Ebola, um, they feared that they would be blamed. Um, and then Doctors Without Borders also has this ethical stance whereby um, they call it distributive justice. And it means that nobody is privileged. Um, so um, a minister of government or a prominent doctor gets the same treatment as a homeless person or a baby. Um, and, uh, and so the, the the doctors at Doctors Without Borders didn't want to give the drug to Khan because that would privilege him. And so they made a decision not to give it to anybody. Um, and you can debate whether or not that was the right decision. Um, oh, yeah, I, I mean, it, what it does is it, it, it takes the whole philosophical thing of lifeboat, you know, who gets to remain on the boat and who gets thrown overboard to a very sobering and um, uh, given great reason for pause uh, example. I mean, th these kind of decisions must have gone on repeatedly. Well, indeed. And it, it tore apart Doctors Without Borders. And all the physicians involved in that decision, when Dr. Khan died, they were in trauma. And I had great difficulty getting any of them to interview with me. Mm -hmm. um, and I was told that some of them can't even speak about it with their colleagues. And there was one physician involved who they told me that he, he simply, he breaks down and he cries whenever he talks about what happened to Dr. Khan. He couldn't be interviewed. But I did end up interviewing um, a woman named Anya Voltz, who was the, uh, the manager of the camp. And she was very candid with me. Uh, I have great respect for her. And she went through all the, you know, the agony of that decision. And then in the end, she said, you know, it may well have been the wrong decision, but I feel it was the right one for the time what I knew, and then she burst into tears and she began crying. Wow. So anyway, yeah. um, and then the Americans ended up getting the drug where it was, um, it evidently saved their lives. So what's the current situation with, with ZMAP or ZMAP right now? I mean, is, is, to what extent are vials of this stuff being distributed where it needs to be? This is really interesting. So ZMAP was the first of this generation of drugs and it's now been superseded by two, two other antibody drugs that are apparently even more effective than ZMAP. And they're being used now widely in Congo, where Ebola virus is burning through the population of eastern Congo. And even with vaccinations, doctors have not been able to get the virus under control. So there are the, this new generation of antibody drugs has been developed. It's incredibly effective, and it's helping encourage patients to go into these isolation camps where they now know that they could get that drug and perhaps be cured. So um, it's a big step forward. ZMAP was an example of the future. These antibody drugs can be developed rather quickly, tested rather quickly, and they can be manufactured in large quantities if you have the right kind of manufacturing base. And so in the event of a, a global emergency, when, when some unknown level four virus is breaking out uh, and there doesn't seem to be any vaccine for it, no way to stop it, 
it would be, in theory, possible to develop these groundbreaking drugs that could really um, stop the virus in its tracks. You know, you could develop a drug like that in as little as a few months. Wow. So that could make a big difference worldwide in the, in the event of a, a global pandemic of a new virus. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and I have the great pleasure of interviewing Richard Preston. He's the author of Crisis in the Red Zone. One of the questions I want to ask you is in relation to biowarfare and bioterrorism. Uh, heaven forbid that uh, bad agents got their hands on this material and deliberately wanted to go into uh, downtown Manhattan or into uh, Union Station or in uh, Orlando at a, one of the theme parks or something. You've already alluded to the fact that we really don't have sufficient biocontainment capabilities in this nation. You've spoken about the, the lack of positive pressure suits, which is what people wear for these biohazards. What would happen? What would happen, Richard, if that were to occur? Well, it's absolutely a concern. And what is extremely concerning is the fact that the old Soviet Union had a, a vigorous, robust biowarfare program where they developed these weapons and manufactured large quantities of bioweapons, including uh, allegedly tanks that held 20 tons of liquid weapons-grade smallpox virus. Now, um, you know, and unfortunately, that knowledge has not gone away. Mm. And in modern Russia, Vladimir Putin has flatly refused to share any of these military strains with the United States. They have all those strains in the, in the Russian laboratories, including um, an exceedingly hot strain of smallpox, which is potentially the most dangerous virus on the planet right now. Wow. Uh, it's called the Russia India One Drain, and it was it was apparently developed by the old Soviet military for inclusion in, um, believe it or not, ICBM missiles that were targeted on cities in North America. Wow! So they had a delivery system. It's not just that they had the viruses, but they had weapons systems, including missiles, to actually deliver the virus to the air over an American city. Um, now, you know, some of those missile systems are very likely not in use. They're not usable anymore in modern Russia. But the knowledge is there. Mm. And unfortunately, the knowledge is also spread. Um, Russian biowarfare scientists left the Soviet Union after it broke up, and they, some of them vanished. They went out of sight. And they're likely in places like North Korea sharing their expertise. So the problem of biological weapons is very real. Certain governments around the world um, are evidently favoring biological weapons as potential um, weapons of mass destruction. And then the big question mark is, could a terrorist organization get its hands on a military-grade bioweapon? And could if they? so, what would it do? Could they? Well, they, you know, interestingly, they haven't so far. We would know if, they, if somebody released you know, a weapons-grade smallpox or a genetically engineered virus um, that, that was engineered to the standards of a, a, a national laboratory, you know, a military operation, we would know. Uh, that hasn't happened. So my supposition is that the major terrorist organizations that have probably been trying to get their hands on bioweapons or manufacturing them, making them, you know, in small labs, but so far at least they haven't had a lot of success, which, or at least not obviously. One of the things I want to ask you is you've, you've addressed smallpox, and I don't think many people realize just what smallpox does to the body. Would you like to describe that? Sure. And I will say that smallpox was officially eradicated as a disease in 1980. Um, and the virus only exists now in high security laboratories and officially in two locations on the planet. One is a lab in Siberia, and the other is the CDC laboratories in Atlanta, Georgia, USA. Uh, smallpox also may exist in clandestine military laboratories elsewhere, but we don't know for sure. At least I don't. So smallpox is, in many ways, perhaps the most dangerous virus planet right now to humans. It, it, it's highly contagious. It travels in the air. 
and it is devastating to the human body. About one-third of the people who catch smallpox die of it. Um, even if you survive, it's a perfectly horrifying, loathsome disease. The skin blisters up with hard, pus-filled uh, pustules, as they're called. It is incredibly painful. A person who is pustulated with smallpox is deathly ill. They can barely move. They're in horrendous pain. They have a high fever, and they smell. There's a very peculiar smell. Uh, nobody what, really understands what it. What is it like, the smell? Do you know? Uh, it's a sickly sweet smell that travels long distances. In the 19th century, there were smallpox doctors who could walk past a house in the street and just smell the air coming out of the window and could diagnose smallpox inside the house. Um, and smallpox doctors who I interviewed who had dealt with these patients said that the, uh, the smell of smallpox in the smallpox ward was something that would go with them to their graves. Wow. They, they could never get the smell out of their heads. Now, a fatal case of smallpox would be if the blisters merge into a solid pebbled sheet, you're going to die. Uh, and then there's another form of smallpox known as hemorrhagic smallpox, in which blisters do not form. And instead, um, the skin blackens and develops um, a corrugated appearance that is likened to, they call it crepe rubber skin. Uh, and the skin then can slough off in sheets on the body. Um, there is hemorrhaging into the eyeballs, so the eyeballs fill up with blood. Uh, and uh, smallpox also causes the intestines to pustulate on the inside. So the linings of the intestines develop pustules and then slough off. And a person who is dying of smallpox can expel fragments of their intestinal lining out through the anus. Um, this is, uh, you know, one of the more gruesome aspects of it. Um, and then there's hemorrhaging, as with Ebola. So it is thought that uh, the, uh, the Russian version, the weaponized version of India-1 smallpox, which Vladimir Putin will not share with anybody, he won't let any American scientists test, make tests on this train. Has the UN uh, taken him to town, figuratively speaking, no. regarding that? Why not? No. Uh, I don't know why. Yeah. But the U.S. government has been quietly trying to persuade him and negotiating with him for years. But um, it's done no good. And it's very clear that Putin is never going to share before, his military-grade weapons. Before you leave us, um, I... I would be appreciative, as I'm sure many listeners would be, exactly from the human aspect. How is Ebola transmitted uh, in, in the everyday way and in varieties thereof? Well, it's transmitted literally through direct contact with blood and body fluids. And in many cases, it it's, appears to be transmitted in contact with sweat. When a person has Ebola, um, the bloodstream becomes absolutely saturated with Ebola particles. Um, a half teaspoon of a person's blood can easily contain one billion particles of Ebola. Mm. And the, the particles also um, come out through the sweat glands. And so as you sweat with a high fever, um, you're, you're, you're squeezing out millions and millions of Ebola particles onto the surface of the skin. And then as the sweat dries, the entire body becomes effectively painted with Ebola particles. If you touch a dead body or a body sweating with Ebola, um, you can get some particles on your fingertips. And then if you touch your eye, your eyelid, or any wet membrane, you can become infected. This is how it is believed many people get infected. So at funerals in Africa, people naturally embrace the dead, weep over the dead. Um, mm -hmm. When my father passed away, mm -hmm. I was with him and with my mother, and I was right there with him, and I held him in my arms, and I touched his face as we were losing him. Um, it's a natural human thing of course. to want to have contact with your loved ones yes. when they're passing. And, uh, and so, but Ebola virus often is transmitted this way. And Ebola is a true monster in the sense that it, it exploits the best parts of human character, um, our capacity for love, for cherishing other human beings, for rendering care to those who need it, and our capacity for grief. Um, 
it, it travels from one human to another through the, the weaknesses or which are actually the strengths of our human character. Um, it exploits the best of us in order to uh, maintain its existence on the planet and nature. Uh, and in that sense, uh, I think that that what we see, what we saw in in these outbreaks, is that um, the only way humans can really defeat Ebola is by becoming inhuman themselves. Um, we have to, um, you know, in Africa, people had to do the hardest things to survive. They had to uh, not touch loved ones who mm. were sick with the virus. Mm. They had to make the choice to, for example, send a child into one of these Ebola camps because the child was infected. Mm. Um, and I, as as a parent myself, I can't imagine if my child had a, a, a deadly disease that I would ha- that I would have the ability to to put my child in a camp where I would perhaps never see the child again. Richard, even in the most horrific and disturbing of circumstances and situations, there is redemptive beauty that can be found. And just judging by your relationship with your with your children and with your love of nature and your sense of mirth and, and good humor, you are a person who is just not a Johnny One note looking at the dire side of things, but you also, I believe, are a hopeful personality. Before you leave, will you share your hope and your greatest takeaway on the positive side of all this threatening and sobering material that needs to be addressed? Well, I'm fundamentally optimistic about the human species and about our destiny. Um, And uh, we, in the end, we won. We prevailed against Ebola through our own strength of character, our own ability to work in teams, to support one another and to love one another. This is how we get through crises like Ebola. Mm. And I would remind people that we have a lot of things going for us that viruses don't, including the capacity to love, the capacity to, to render care, and we have our scientific prowess as weapons against the virus. But, you know, I went to Sierra Leone just as the virus was dying down there in 2015. And I saw things that gave me hope. I was driving around in the countryside, and I came across three men who were planting cocoa trees, trees for making chocolate, ultimately. Mm. And these trees were all about six inches tall. And... Uh, these guys would not be able to harvest any cocoa from those trees for, what, 15 years maybe? Yes. But they were, they were planting trees for their future. And, um, you know, our, our species has endured plagues in the past. I think about the Great Plague of London. But right. these plagues, yeah. while they've devastated, you know, people, um, they've never set us back forever. Um, and we have continued to, to do glorious things as people, and we will in the future. You've been listening to Watching America. My guest has been Richard Preston, the author of Crisis in the Red Zone. It is not an exploitive book. I've read it. It is a thoughtful, well-crafted book. I challenge anyone to read it and not come away feeling indebted to Richard Preston as an author. I want to thank you so much, Richard, for being on Watching America. And the next time you come out with something, please don't hesitate to call us. I avidly want to talk to you again. Well, thank you, Alan. It's been a pleasure being with you. Take care. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme tune is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer is Paul Bebo. Senior producer, Gina Gamboni. Executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Chief of content, Heather Mazzoni. And CEO, Bert Schmidt. I'm the series creator and host, yours truly, Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care. Blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.